Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today on the What Fuels You podcast, I'm sitting down with Terry Sitterman, an executive coach and author with an extensive career in communications and journalism. Her published book, From the CEO's Perspective, profiles 20 top CEOs on what they are doing to develop leadership within their companies. Terry's currently the founder and CEO of Talon, where she and other executive coaches help leaders uncover and leverage their power and influence. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you because um, for those who have listened to the podcast, I had Terry do the inaugural uh, interview of me, which was brave. And so I'm getting you back, sister. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Starting with your favorite rapid fire. Um, favorite form of exercise? Far. Current perfume? Perfume de Marley. Biggest pet peeve? Oh, everything. <laughs> um. I know you said passive aggressiveness. That's high on my list, but I'm, I I have so many. What's your biggest pet peeve? Not keeping commitments. Word people use to describe you. Direct. Which CEO are you most interested in coaching? Jeff Bezos. Oh, that'd be awesome. Place you'd most like to visit besides your awesome new house in Costa Rica? Um, Israel. Oh, have you not been? I've not been. I'm in What? Yes, I know. Well, that's a perfect segue. In doing research for the podcast, um, it's kind of taken this rhythm within the other podcasts of me caring deeply about what people were like as children and kind of what shaped them as children. Mm -hmm. And I knew this, but I still was really shocked to see that your parents are both Holocaust survivors. Yes. You have siblings. You're one of how many? Four. And where are you in the birth order? Yes. Oldest. Baby. <laughs> oh, <laughs> interesting. You're the baby? I can't even imagine what the older siblings are like. Well, here's why. You're an intense baby. I know. But but so I was raised as an only child, essentially. Oh, because they're so older. I have the old, yeah, they're a lot older okay. than me. So I have the oldest and the youngest. And are your parents still living? No. Both of them have passed away. Correct. Okay. So at what age were you when you learned that your parents were Holocaust survivors? Um, I don't know exactly what age I was, but I remember a moment. Uh, I was nine and I was watching an after school special and it was about the Holocaust. And that's when I realized that's what we'd been talking about. Mm. And I remember you know, asking my mom if that could ever happen again. And I kind of I kind of freaked out. And my mom was the kind of person who I guess was reactive and called the PBS right away and said, mm. how can you possibly show this at four o'clock in the afternoon? And um, but that was probably the moment where I was like that. That was my family. Yeah. Where were you raised? Portland. And so not a huge Jewish community. Wasn't part of the Jewish community. So your parents and being Holocaust survivors, I know some like double down on their identity. Others learn to assimilate. My dad was all about assimilation. So it wasn't a big part of your identity growing up. No, it was a uh, Something that we did not 
Uh, you didn't practice. We didn't. Well, here's the irony. My dad, my mother's father was a rabbi. Yeah. So, but my dad was all about hiding it. Have they told you their whole stories? Yeah, I know the stories. Have you shared them? Oh, yeah, I have. And I um, I actually started writing a book with my dad in 2000. And are you going to publish it? I don't think so. I don't think I am. I want, I want you to. Um, he didn't. And he didn't want you to publish it. No, he didn't. And uh, and that's not why I would publish it. I started to try to write it, and it was just pedestrian. It was, I just couldn't place, I just couldn't tell the story in a way that did it justice. Mm-hmm. So maybe as I get older, maybe I'll I'll develop that. Mm-hmm. But well, it's a, it's incredible for to pass on to generations. So it actually is a gift. Yeah, we have it all recorded. Well, so many questions. But where did you learn to write so well? You're an incredible writer. I know that you studied journalism, but is that from childhood? Were you one of those kid writers? Yeah. You've always been a writer. I it's it's a gift that yeah. I I yeah. I just I was always a writer and it was always very reinforced that I was a good writer. And were you um into creative writing or more uh, as a reports? kid? As a kid I wrote creative. Um I, I don't like to write fiction. Yeah. And where did you end up going to school? University of Oregon. U of O. Mm-hmm. Ducks. Ducks. Nice. That's right. I know that you wanted to um, get into communications, but you kind of took all of your careers that you've had to the highest level. And so did you have to kind of eat broccoli along the way? Did you have any sure. crazy jobs? Um, did I have any crazy jobs? You mean like being a stripper or something? <laughs> um, You'd be a good stripper with your... Um, I always threatened my you parents. Would be so <laughs> I always good. had a fallback plan. Well, here's the thing. You know, a lot of people talk about how your career, you just kind of let it flow and it kind of wiggles and zigs and zags and all that. Um, I was really deliberate. Yeah, I'm like, I'm <laughs> guessing that wasn't you. That wasn't me. Yeah. I. Um, so what did you want to be if I had met you when we were in third grade? A writer. And what about uh, your senior year of college? I graduated with a journalism degree. And you wanted to use it? I to, wanted to do PR. To do PR. Yep. Okay. Was, and I, that's what you did? That's what I did. Okay, and what did you? What industry did you cover? Um, well, I moved to D.C. Okay, I thought I might want to go to law school, and so I worked at an, a lawyer's office in Portland, and then decided I didn't want to do that right away, and so I moved to D.C. Loved it, um, and I worked at an association in government affairs, but angling for the PR mm-hmm. role. Um, eventually I moved to Colorado for a job at a PR agency. Yeah. So. And what ultimately brought you to Seattle? Um, Denver was not my, it wasn't my gig. So you chose Seattle? Yeah. Cool. And so all of your career here was mostly in communications and PR? So my first job here in Seattle was PR for the Space Needle. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Things could be worse. Best job ever. That's awesome. We're going to get to how you kind of parlayed your career into coaching, but have you ever had a coach? Uh, I wouldn't say formally. But you've had mentors. I've definitely had mentors. Yeah. And how has that come to be? Have you asked them to mentor you? Have people have organically mentored you? Because I remember I met a guy through you at the Four Seasons who kind of said he was your mentor. He is my mentor. He is your mentor. He's still my mentor. And so how how did that happen? Well, it's kind of a crazy story. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Dick Friel. Remember Dick Friel? No. Dick Friel was one of our top auctioneers. Auction. Is that what they're called? Auction house. People. Uh, he was a uh, yeah. he was a the guy's like yeah yeah so he did all the huge um think, I think know about it you know okay. who he is um I had met with him he was at Boeing so one of my hobbies was looking for a job 
That's why I thought I wanted to be a recruiter, actually. You'd be so good. Um, the stripper The stripper, the stripper recruiter. recruiter. Yeah, God. So I'd met with Dick Brill. He, was, he worked at Boeing. And, um, and it was one of those things where it was a good meeting, but it, I didn't really think anything was going to come out of it. And, and, um, and this, is, this is a very big lesson in influence, and you never know what relationships are going to lead where. But he called me and he said, you need to go to the Four Seasons, which is now the Fairmont, uh, at 4 o'clock today, bring your resume. And so I did. I, he said, look for Mike. He's going to be wearing an Italian uh, suit, smoking a corncob pipe, because back then you could smoke in the hotel. And so I spotted him, and I, you know, I sat down with him, and he started... Like Dick sent me? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a weird... Well, it was weird to me, apparently. And this was October 31st, okay. 2000. So it was a very auspicious day. And I sat down with him. And he said, oh, you do PR. He said, well, the, the building's for sale, and I've got a bunch of people who I want, you know, a group of men who are going to buy this building and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, if you play your cards right, you might have a job. And I'm, I don't trust anybody. I'm like, well, whatever. And so he got up. He, he, his phone rang. He took a call from, you know, and walked away. And there were two other people sitting at the table. And one of the, guy, the guys sitting there was talking about his um, suits of armor collection. Mm -hmm. He had just sold to buy a castle in Germany. And the, the woman sitting at the table was talking about her kid going to some boarding school and this and that. And I'm like, this is not, these are not my people. Yeah. So, um, so you know, there was just a lot of eccentricity in the yeah. room. So Mike comes back and he says, so you do PR, you know, let's talk about what you would do for this hotel. And, you know, so I'm thinking about my strategy. And right as I am, up walks a reporter from the Seattle Times. And... Uh, so he sits down, the other two people leave, and he starts drilling Mike about, um, you know, just the hotel and this and that. And so Mike turns to me and he says, so you do PR. What would you say? Oh, wow. So it was just this total deer in the headlights. I need to, like, be on and perform. And there's a lot to this story yeah. that I'm not going to go into. But um, it was that was sort of the moment where I was like, okay. And did you get the did you get a job out of it? No. Because they didn't just, buy the hotel. They didn't end up buying the hotel. <laughs> but what happened was he became, uh, I mean, he's he's he, been he my gender, champion. Yeah. yeah. He's been just my mentor for since 2000. Wow. So, and sometimes the, the roles switch a little bit, but yeah. That's, that's a he's special relationship. been a constant in my life. I love that. And so what made you transition? Because you had a really significant career in journalism and communications. What made you make the leap to wanting to help leaders... Uh, become more powerful and influential. So I was ghostwriting books for CEOs, and I realized that the way I do ghostwriting is very similar to coaching. So the type of questions that I ask, because it's just my curiosity, was going toward how they thought about themselves as leaders and their companies versus what would actually go in the book. And so I started exploring that, and I found a program out of um, Sarasota, Florida, that I really – it just – resonated for me. And mm -hmm. uh, so I went through that and, and so, my job. <laughs> and so um, how did you go about getting clients? And um, tell us about where you were and where you are now. Well, the first thing I did was write a book uh, from the CEO's perspective, because, I mean, one of the big things I'd read, I read a statistic that said U.S. companies faced a, a gap in the pipeline of leaders. There were There was not succession wasn't going to happen because there weren't enough leaders to fill the spots. So that was one reason I wrote the, both the book. The other reason I wrote the book was because I needed people to think of me differently. 
Mm-hmm. So I needed to, them to think of me as an executive coach, mm-hmm. no longer someone who writes books for other people. Right. And you needed that first person to say yes, to be featured. And then you ended up getting a lot of really impressive leaders to participate. Yeah. I think John Oppenheimer was probably the first person who said yes. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. That's awesome. And so um, the business then, you wrote the book. Mm-hmm. You published it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read it. It's great for Thank those you. who want to read it. Um, and your business at that stage was coaching one-on-one individual mm-hmm. leaders. Mm-hmm. And do you do any group um, coaching? No. Yeah. Well, so I I found that executive coaching was really my – I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I love it today. I love it. I just – I do. Mm-hmm. And um, I – started a program called Leadership Lab 19, which is really the only group kinds of things that I do. It's VP and above, but it's leaders who want to have more impact. It's invitation okay. only. Um, so the CEOs in my world are the ones who invite their people to be part of it. And the idea was that it's all about elevating your leadership to think from the CEO's perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, then you also do the panels, which are incredible. I do the panels, yeah. So you've talked to so many different executives at this stage. What do you see as um, an attribute that you think is the killer? So, you know, I've asked every CEO, what's the one behavior trait you think every leader must have in order to be great? Mm -hmm. And And they all have different answers. They do. Yeah, I read the book and I'm like, can I find any nuggets? But they all have very different opinions. Well, and I've continued to ask that question, which the way I look at it is it tells us there's as many ways to lead as there are leaders. Mm -hmm. So there isn't one thing. I mean, I have my opinion? one thing. Yeah, what's your one thing? It's fearlessness, courage. Mm-hmm. You have to have courage. Yeah. I, and I truly don't think anything else matters. Courage. If you don't have courage, I just don't see how you could be a leader. What about a weakness that you think is like, look out for this? Lack of self-awareness. Yeah, that's huge. That's the big one. And you see that. And those people are probably not so coachable. They are not coachable. Yeah. Yes, I see that And so is there an intake that you do to see if you want to coach somebody? Yes. Because it's obviously a mutual decision. It's a pretty intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. They need to be ready to be vulnerable and be receptive. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of things do you look for in... At this point, I'm pretty pretty good at judging whether or not someone's um, coachable or not. It used to be when people would say, I'm really self-aware. That used to be a red flag for me. And it still is a little bit, but because you've basically set me up to prove you wrong now. Mm-hmm. So, um, but if as long as they've got other, um, you know, curiosity and willingness and openness going for them, then that's not such a red flag anymore. Um, what makes them not coachable? I mean, if they've got all the answers, they don't need me. <laughs> um, and what is your methodology as far as kind of how you go about coaching? Um, I use an assessment, and uh, it's a killer assessment. It's known for its rigor. It's like taking the SAT. Sometimes that's what's going to— A lot of weed people out pretty quickly. It weeds people out. Um, Not too many, but I've certainly had people say, I don't have time for this. I'm like, well, okay. Um, I start with that. That tells us the data, the strengths they really have, not the ones they think they have. Prior to that, I do a qualitative conversation. So now I've got a pretty full picture of who they are and what they're about, and that's what informs where we're going. So um, they may think, and and there may be reason to go in a direction, you know, I need to be a better communicator. I need to be a more decisive, whatever. But this tells us more about um, how this might be a blind spot or what other strengths is, are getting in their way. Mm-hmm. And what about if somebody is like an incredible individual contributor and just not a great manager. Are you also teaching them how to lead, um, not just lead 
big initiatives, but actually like manage people? Yeah. I mean, what happens typically is someone gets promoted into a larger role. So for example, if someone was a salesperson and a fantastic salesperson, which is why they got promoted, um, a lot of what got you there won't get you that or what got you here won't get you there. And so that's when they may not have had a big team before, or they might not have had multiple um, function, functional Mm -hmm. teams. So that's a lot of the work I do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so if someone is working with you and they want to feel like there's some sort of measurement of like Mm -hmm. where I was versus where I am now, Mm -hmm. how do they go about that? Is it just some sort of self-awareness or is it a new assessment? Well, we do a 360 sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that does tell us a lot. Um, But a lot of it has to do. So the work I do is primarily around executive presence. Okay. And it's around confidence. And tell, tell me more about that. What do you mean about executive presence? So when I think of executive presence... I think of equal footing. So when you're sitting across from anyone, no matter who they are, whether it's Satya Nadella or anyone, you have to feel on equal footing. So how do you do that? And it's it, it's very much about catching your confidence when it starts to go, knowing what those triggers are and bringing it back up. And it's hard because it you have to be extremely mindful in the moment. And mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time and a lot of practice. But um, so you're teaching mindfulness. Um, I, I wouldn't call it that, but that's probably what some people would call it. Awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And so are there examples of, you don't have to say their names, but people that you're really proud of where they were and where they are today? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I'm, I'm, I have awesome clients, so I'm I'm really proud of all of them. Um, but it's, you know, it's sitting in a boardroom and being able to be effective so much and have more impact and communicate so much more clearly. And, you know, where you might have been the person who was going off on tangents or, um, you know, talking about how the sausage gets made, those that doesn't belong in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. So completely resetting your, your way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a lot of clients who just... There's just... There's so many wins. That's great. And I know that um, sometimes I get asked about um, helping people find an executive coach. And I, I know there's so many different styles and different things that people specialize in. So your coach, well, they have to be accountable to you, but sure. um, how to learn how to be accountable at work. Are you teaching them different methodologies around that? So I typically coach at the CEO level mm-hmm. and um, or their executive teams. Um, so it's more about how do they hold others accountable. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. When you're highly independent and you expect people to be like you, and I'm sure you know this too as a CEO, um, it's hard when people aren't like you. And it's easy to just, when you're highly independent and um, highly energetic, you're focused on, you just assume everybody's doing what you expect them to do. Mm -hmm. And that's often not the case. It is often not the case. So so that's where the, I, I certainly don't encourage anyone to be a micromanager ever unless the need is there, but there is a, a need to, be more clear with your expectations. Be more clear about what kinds of check-ins you need from mm-hmm. people. Give them the direction that, so that they can be accountable to mm-hmm. you. Well, that goes to something that I know that you care deeply about, which is not caring so much about what other people think, which sometimes is hard as a leader to give clear direction because you don't, at least for me, sometimes I don't want to come off too bossy or too, like I am micromanaging and it's part of my identity that I'm kind of a chill CEO with my team. But sometimes that can also, people like clarity and they like direction. Yes, they do. And so have you seen that where people um, care too deeply and it bites them? Always. 
I think it's the root of um, failure to a large degree. Um, if if I could help people, and I try, and I'm starting, I'm trying to learn more about why what motivates people to care what other people think so deeply that it gets in their way of um, setting. Well, I their think people have a deep need for validation, affirmation, acceptance. I mean, these are kind of the basic human needs for a lot of people. Yes. It's very hard for me to understand that. I wonder what makes you... But see, for me, like, you're the outlier, I think. I am the outlier I think more. you're the outlier. I know that I'm probably on an extreme to, to the right, and you're probably an extreme to the left, down the middle, because I think sometimes caring what people think can help, because it, I, I deliver information the right way, with the right people, with the right timing, besides just being like, this is my decision, take it or leave it. And yeah, I think people feel empowered and they feel like they're a part of something. Yes. And I think the way you run your team is awesome. I mean, you're, I think your culture is fantastic. Um, it's not about not caring about people. I care about people. I don't care a lot about people and I don't care a lot about a lot of people. I care about very few people. Um, if I cared about what everybody thought or listened to what everybody has told me what to do and the advice that they've given me, advice, and I do that with air quotes, I don't, I couldn't be what I, I couldn't do what I do. I couldn't be who I am. So if, if I could give a little bit of that to those who are on that other side of the spectrum or pendulum or whatever, I think coming to center where you, you care about people and you're empathetic but it doesn't get in the way of making hard decisions, being decisive, being mm-hmm. clear, setting expectations, and doing things that you know are the right things to do because of the because of the company, mm-hmm. not necessarily the greater good. I mean, I see a lot of people holding on to people who really should not be there anymore. Yeah, it's, it's kind of done. Yeah, that's so much. You see easier that in relationships too. Oh, for sure. <laughs> How do you teach that? Yeah. So what it is is your opinion becomes more important. The way you do things becomes more important. Um, and and I really coach to help people see that mm-hmm. versus it's not about it's not about doing something differently. It's about stop doing something you're you're doing that's not helping you. Mm-hmm. So if if you, for example, aren't having a conversation because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, that's not helpful for anyone. No. So so how do you decide to be more assertive? How do you decide to be more and I'm not saying you have to be aggressive or confrontational, but being assertive is really important and and I mean I think it's the best way to communicate. I think it's the key to communication mm-hmm. is being direct and being assertive. Not everyone is like that. I well, understand. Well certainly when we're in Seattle. So I mean Seattle's known for being the what do they call it? icy or whatever, and also slightly passive aggressive, which you and I have talked about. Yeah. And so directness can oftentimes be misunderstood. But that's great that you're like, okay, deal. And that the people who uh, should be in the room are in the room with you. Yes. Well, I'm not for everybody. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do people decide if our listeners are looking for a coach mm-hmm. and they're qualified as far as their, their level of um, what they've achieved in their careers? Mm-hmm. How do they know if you're for them? Um, we just have to have a conversation. It's chemistry. Yeah. I mean, I and I know great coaches who are very different than me that I would highly recommend. Yeah. Um, but so you're the right coach for somebody who can deal with someone who's direct and who really is ready to do some work on themselves and, and really is there because they want to be. Yeah. But I think every coach would say that. Yeah. You know? I think 
it really comes down to my style is nowhere to hide. I listen mm-hmm. for what's not being said. I don't, there's nothing that I don't call. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of, um, I'll tell you, this is how I approach things. And it's kind of weird. I told the C- a CEO the other day and I think he, I don't know if he'll ever speak to me again. Um, I'm sure he will. I don't know. <laughs> is he a, is he a client? Um, no, no, he's not. Well, kind of. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I I listen and watch a lot of crime, and I've always been very interested in deception. And not so much about – it's not that I can tell when people are lying or any of that, but it's more I look at how people deceive, and I how it translates into coaching is how are you deceiving yourself? It's all about self-deception. So, And that's really what a blind spot is, right? Everybody else can see it, but you can't. So what's getting in your way of that? And that's that's really how I help people is – um, helping them see the deception. Hmm. And and it's in their best interest. I mean, it's how you build yourself as a leader. It's are there leaders you... that you work with that have none of that, or they all have some form of that? Well, I think it's human. We all have some form of that. And it could be it could be something as little as, but that's just the way I am. It's part of my identity. That's who I am. That's my DNA. Yeah. Well, it's not working for you, so what do you want to do? Interesting. And does it make a difference if somebody has come to you on their own or if they've been referred from their company, Um, how engaged they are in the process? No, it doesn't. You can get them to be aware once you start. Um, Well, the thing is, is if they're not if they're not wanting to engage, if they're even if they're they're coming to me or their company's coming to me because there's a problem, that's okay. As long as they want to be a better leader, as long mm-hmm. as they want to also address this problem, mm-hmm. then we're good. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but I just had this thought. Are you doing any work with um, equality, diversity, and inclusion, teaching people how to lead in today's world? It seems a little different. Um, so not, not directly. Mm-hmm. The way I do it is indirect, meaning I coach a lot of men. And I help them. If there's an opportunity to hire women, then I help them see that opportunity. But I don't do direct coaching. That's not my expertise. That's not your expertise. But just doing that and understanding that there's more awareness and, is is giving back to the kind of ultimate goal of equality. Right. Which is great. And not just women, but... Yeah. Qualified people, but qualified. just not, not, not hiring their clone. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. Yeah. I do. I guess I'm really fortunate that I get to work with a lot of really enlightened CEOs. Yeah. And where are you going with your business? Like in five years and we, we're sitting down, maybe I'll still be doing the podcast. Where Where's your business going to be and where are you going to be? Physically? Um, well, I know that you want to be maybe in Costa Rica or somewhere on a beach. Spain. Spain. Um, oh my God, I'm coming. Get a house <laughs> immediately. So... I love one-on-one coaching, and I do everything else I do to make sure I – because one-on-one coaching is not scalable. So I do other things to be scalable so mm-hmm. that I can maintain the one-on-one coaching. That's just – I I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, I'm starting a new online course. Exe- oh, that's exciting. Executive Presence for Introverts. Oh, wow. So I'm writing that. It isn't launched yet. I'm hoping to launch this fall. That's incredible. So I want to see what happens with that and – and that's accessible to anybody. Anybody in the world. That's amazing. And is your executive coaching something you can do um, video conference? Yeah. So I you have could a do it clients. from Spain or from Costa Rica. Or you can especially to. do it from Costa Rica since the time zone is so <laughs> easy. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, I do a lot of video conferencing now because um, a lot of it's, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people want to meet in person, which I love. Mm -hmm. But for those who have either moved away or I have clients in other places, we do video and it's perfect. Yeah, that's great. And so in five years, you'll have the online presence. You'll still Mm -hmm. be doing the Mm one-on-one. And do you think that there are there trends or directional directions where coaching is going? Do you try to stay up on all that? No. No, you just go with your gut and all your training and... Well, I mean, I guess you could say I'm doing an online course, which is Well, that's just scalable and it's giving access to more people. Yeah. But it's not necessarily coaching and like, oh, here's our new way of coaching. Well, I think, you know, diversity and inclusion, that is kind of a big topic. Um, But there are people who are far more qualified to coach on that Mm -hmm. than I am. Mm -hmm. Executive presence... Is really power, influence, rank, and power. All that stuff is my, that's right. where I am. Have you incorporated um, communications like speech giving? And we're talking about executive presence, writing, and communications. Yeah. So if somebody's got a big presentation coming up. So you, I help with the presentation. Absolutely. You help them with the writing of it? No. You I just don't. help them make sure that their message is being conveyed. How they deliver it, their delivery, how confident they are, how um, what their presence is. Yeah, I don't write their presentation. I don't write speeches. But there's some great speechwriters here, and yeah, that I recommend. <laughs> yeah, and so um, you seem to live with a lot of deliberation as far as how you make decisions, and I mean, even from a kid, that's unusual. And so, is there anything that you regret or that you would change? Um, certainly, I'm sure there's things that I regret and would change, but I can't think of anything. <laughs> I always end the podcast with asking people what fuels them. Right this minute? Well, not, <laughs> you're like, lunch? Um, no, like what fuels you in your life? Helping people find their courage. Helping people be bold. Helping people not be afraid. Because really... And, you, and who taught you that? Honestly, I think it comes from having parents who are Holocaust survivors. Yeah. You're like, if they can survive that. I mean, the ultimate. It is the ultimate. My courage comes from them. It is part of my DNA. And I believe it is something, if I can help people be more courageous in whatever aspect, that is my job. I love that. Oh, I just got chills. I love that. That's awesome. How did it feel being on the the other side? I like asking questions. (laughs) I have so I many it. questions now for you. Uh-oh. Well, we can, I'll have you back then. That'll be fun. Okay. Um, thank you, thank you, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.